you know, as I got better and better and was chasing performance, I was noticing that I wasn't that healthy. I was fit and I was fast, but I wasn't that healthy. Intense exercise is a stress. A little bit of stress is good, but a, a lot of stress piled up day after day is bad. How is it best incorporated into your life? Exercise is truly about the movement. It's about putting the muscles and the joints of your body through different planes and ranges of motion. Move as often as frequently as you can at low levels of aerobic output. Lift heavy things twice a week and sprint once a week. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Okay, friends, I know I often say that I'm very excited about today's show, but this is Mark Sisson. He's somebody I've been following from the very, very beginning. This was such a surreal moment. He's a legend in the whole paleo world, keto world, endurance, performance world. And of course, I was so thrilled that he just turns out to be the nicest person on the planet. I so thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It's definitely one of the ones I was pretty nervous about, so I can't wait to hear what you guys think. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash Mark Sisson. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post there. And again, comment to enter to win something that I love. If you are enjoying the show, it would mean the absolute world, world, world. If you could take a brief moment and subscribe in iTunes and or write a brief iTunes review, it helps so much more than most people realize. So thank you so much in advance for that. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, focused on a certain type of person and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that Spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking Spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. 
Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, It may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's Avalon X to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys If you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, 
and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code clean for all 20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a band of beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Mark Sisson. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. When it comes to this show, I get to interview a lot of really incredible guests, but this is about as excited as I get for guests. So that is saying a lot. I am here with honestly a legend in the whole, I was going to say paleo, primal, holistic health world. Mark Sisson, okay, I'm going to just backtrack and tell my story a little bit. So about 10 years ago, I adopted a whole foods paleo type diet. And one of the very first resources that I really dived into was the work of Mark Sisson. He has an online website that is just full of so much information. I would read all the blog posts, all the comments. I learned so much. Since then, I have read every single book as they released. He's a multiple New York Times bestseller. And I've become good friends with people who know him well. So Elle Russ has been on the show multiple times. She's a great friend. And Brad Kearns as well, who is his co-author. But never have I met the man himself. So this is just really an amazing moment. And there are so many directions that we could take this in. So I'm just really excited to see where it's going to go. So Mark, thank you so much for being here. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here, Melanie. Looking forward to the discussion. So I lived in LA for about 10 years and during that time I had what I <laughs> I had what I call the dark time which was like a year or two where I was struggling with a lot of health issues and I really didn't go out much I really just kind of camped out in my apartment working on podcasting and things like that but I went twice to your previous restaurant endeavor <laughs> I went to Primal Kitchen once and it was fabulous by myself because again I wasn't really like going out much And then I went a second time and it was closed. I didn't know that it was (laughs) 
going to be closed, which is actually a topic maybe we can get into later because I'm really, really curious about your life and your life as an entrepreneur and your, what you've learned in that journey. But so to start things off, my audience is probably very, very familiar with you, but I'm really curious. I was reading your recent books and you do talk a lot about your life when you were an athlete and the trials for the Olympics and Ironmans and all that stuff. You talk about how you actually didn't really have fun doing any of that. And so I was wondering, so that part of your life, how long was it? Why were you doing it? Like, what was your intrinsic motivation? And what was the epiphany that you had, if there was a single epiphany that made you so radically change your life and go on the new trajectory that you're on now? Well, I didn't know this was going to be a psychotherapy session. So what made me want to engage in so much pain for so long? So, you know, it's, it kind of goes back to my childhood. I was, uh, I was born in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine. It's a fishing village, a small fishing village. My father was an artist, not a fisherman, but he was a painter and an artist and supported the family actually selling his paintings. I went to school there, was, was raised there, and I uh, was kind of a, a small kid, scrawny kid, didn't really wasn't big enough to play basketball or football or baseball or hockey or any of the sort of local popular sports. I lived about two miles from school, and I just found it was much more convenient to jog to school than to take the bus. I could actually get there and get more importantly, get home after school faster than if I took the bus. So I started just out of necessity as a, as a mode of transportation, running and jogging in my early teen years. As I got older, I went out for the track team in high school and I was, I'd been sort of bullied as a kid for no other reason than when you grow up in a, in a small fishing village, there's not a lot of activity for anyone to do except, you know, be territorial and, and all of that. So I had a bit of a experience being bullied physically. And so I, when I went out for the track team and found that I was winning the mile and the two mile in pretty much every event that every, every meet that we went to, the next thing I know, I'm, I'm the high point man on the track team and as a freshman in high school. So that gave me enough cred, enough street cred that I thought, well, I can pursue this running idea. And I, and I did so all through high school, all through college. And then, and then for much of my early athletic career. I had read early on, I was interested in, in health, and I'd read Ken Cooper's book on aerobics. That was a time at which the beginning of the aerobics era. And the message that he was delivering was that the more aerobic activity you did, the better it was for your heart, the better something was for your heart, the longer you would live and the healthier you would be. And so I embraced that notion and I put in a lot of miles. And in the pursuit of those miles, I wound up having to consume a lot of carbohydrates because that was the standard operating procedure of any athlete in order to fuel all those miles. We thought you had to carbo load pretty much every day. So my life was about packing in loads of carbohydrate every day and putting in lots of miles every day from the age of 15 until the age of probably 30 pretty aggressively. As I got better and better at competition and I got faster that was a motivation to continue doing what I was doing. I was one of the best in the state, and then I was one of the best in the region, and then eventually I was one of the best in the country at what I was doing. So there's a lot of motivation behind there. There's a lot of impetus behind that, especially for someone who had been bullied and who had been sort of, my self-image was that of a scrawny, non-athletic person who was trying to carve out a space in in, in an otherwise athletic he-man world. So 
that was the that was kind of the impetus. That's the psychotherapy portion of the talk today. But what happened was, you know, as I got better and better and it was chasing performance, I was noticing that I wasn't that healthy. I was fit and I was fast, but I wasn't that healthy. I had irritable bowel syndrome. I had arthritis in my feet. I had tendonitis in my hips. I had upper respiratory tract infections several times a year. I, was, I always had a cold of some kind or flu. So my immune system was shot. I had gastroesophageal reflux. I had a, a, a host of things. I had bad acne as a kid, all of which I sort of assumed went with a territory, went with a high stress lifestyle of, of being an endurance athlete. It wasn't until later that I found out that my diet was, the, was, was largely the, the cause of all of this. But while I was doing it, I was, I was trying to do the right thing. I was trying to read all the books on how to fuel for the miles and how to, how to eat appropriately. And again, this was still back in the day when the notion of a high complex carbohydrate based diet was deemed the best possible diet. So a lot of what I was eating was grain based breads and pancakes and pasta and cereal and any other way I could, I could cram carbs down my, my throat. As I got more and more inflamed from this diet and, and, and ultimately after I had to retire due to injuries, as I sort of realized I had an aha moment, first of all, that my diet had been, had been pretty antithetical to health and ultimately antithetical to performance, that the miles I was putting in were probably way more than my body was ready, willing, and able to handle. But I think most importantly, the real aha moment came when I realized that all I was doing every day in the training was managing discomfort. You know, when you play a game, a game involves some, and the, just the word play involves some amount of joy and, and sense of satisfaction beyond a feeling of self-satisfaction for having, you know, run a fast time. Games, even if you're at a championship level soccer team or soccer or a football team, or basketball team, the players are having fun, even under the highest amounts of pressure. They're having fun. It's, it's really, they're working hard, but they're having fun while they're doing it. In an endurance contest, and particularly long distance like marathons and, in, and triathlons, which I eventually became a, a triathlete, what you're doing is you're just managing discomfort. What you're doing is you're pushing your body to a point at which it's very uncomfortable. And hopefully with the training, you adapt to that level of discomfort such that you can push even harder the next time, but you're always pushing up against a wall of discomfort. If, if it's too comfortable, you won't be racing well. You won't be performing well. You'll be, you know, jogging instead of running. You'll be easy cycling instead of is all out cycling. So the, the idea that I wasn't having fun, that, that, that looking back on a career where it was about managing discomfort, every single workout, every single race, and it was only after it was over that I could sit back and go, okay, I feel good now. I'm, I, you know, it's almost like you know, you hit your your, your head with a hammer, and and it's and it's horrible, but it feels good when you stop, right? So now, when you talk about racing at the elite level, it becomes even more interesting in that everybody who shows up at the at the starting line that day, at least the top twenty competitors, they're all probably equally genetically gifted. They're probably all equally trained, and they probably all want it enough. And the winner that day really comes down to who is willing to dig such a deep hole for himself and drag everyone into it that he or she wins the race literally by attrition because people drop off the back and can't keep up. They're, they're, 
they're, he's inviting them to share their dis, his discomfort or her discomfort. And so it's a, you know, it's a pain festival, really. And, and that's like, again, when I had this aha moment years after I retired, I'm like, what was I thinking? Jesus. I mean, that's, that is so, that's, that's such a, again, a, a pursuit. If you're talking about enjoying your life, that's a tough one to, to argue on behalf of, right? So there, there you have it. That's my, that's my assessment of my, my time as an endurance athlete. Okay. I have some follow-up questions from that. One, so you're mentioning this concept of play. Was play something that hunter-gatherers would do? So it sounds like with endurance sports, that's something that from an evolutionary perspective, we would have never engaged in as a thing. No, 100% right. No, it would be such a waste of energy, precious you know, human energy to think about training with a mindset of, of going to the well every day or, or five days a week. So our ancestors, so to answer your first question, yes, our ancestors and, and our, our, you know, ape predecessors play is a huge factor in development and growth and, and humans are wired to play throughout their entire life, not just as children. I mean, we hear, we hear this sort of mantra in child development about kids are, you're supposed to let them play and experiment and, fall down and, you know, and, and, and they develop social skills in addition to physical skills. Certainly it wires the brain for planning. And as an ancestral human being, that includes planning how to hunt an animal that you're going to eat. So a lot of our ancestors, we hear these stories about the hunters tracking and, and running after the beast for, you know, two hours before they kill it. Well, it's not all running. It's some of it's walking, some of it's hiding and crouching. Some of it is, you know, skipping from one hiding stone to the next. It's, it's not a linear all out run at max capacity for two hours. It was sort of a, a game in and of itself. The hunt became, became a game as much as anything else. A lot of the early, you know, tribal events were based around games that, that men and women and children would play, all of which helped with Social skills with learning, with development, with with enjoyment of life, with you know, breaking the monotony of an otherwise tedious existence, et cetera, et cetera. So, so yes, play is a is an integral part of humans, and it's the reason that it's one of the ten primal blueprint laws that I want everybody to play as often and as much as they can. Back to my own experience, I, I realized that throughout much of my endurance career, I wasn't playing much. I couldn't really take a chance on playing a pickup basketball game or even a pickup baseball game for fear of pulling a hamstring or twisting an ankle. I couldn't ski for the same reasons. So there was not a lot of play in in my life for that 15-year period. Well, I really love hearing this because I am a self-identified like type A workaholic who feels guilty a little bit about playing. So if I can reframe it as something beneficial for my health and longevity, that's a win all around. <laughs> this touches on something else that you talk about. And I'm not going to remember from which book everything was because I've, like I said, read all your books, but you talk about the physical activity of like of modern day hunter-gatherers like the Hadza and how it's actually, don't they burn a similar energy expenditure to office workers? Yeah. It's not like it's a big a big deal. There's this assumption that that the Hadza and, and as well as 
a number of athletic pursuits at the highest elite level burn some inordinate amount of calories every day. I mean, the, you know, Michael Phelps famously consuming 11,000 calories of food a day. He wasn't burning close to that. I mean, even if you trained five hours a day, which you couldn't do every day, but if you could, you wouldn't do it at 1,000 calories an hour. You would do it at six or 800 calories an hour. And even that, that's a 3,000 calorie expenditure. So your body would probably just say at the end of the day, all right, there's no time to do anything else. I'm just going to sleep or rest, which is what these top athletes do. So so it, it's interesting to find out that that the caloric energy expenditure from one pursuit in life across the board to another from ancestral living in the elements to office work to being a competitive athlete, there's not a tremendous variation in calories burned. Now, it might be on a daily basis, it might, it might, there might be some variations, but if you add up the, the weekly average output or the, you know, the output for an entire week and then divide that by seven days, you'll come up with a number that's not that disparate from one group to the next. So one of the take-home messages there, which has been, I think, highly talked about in the last five or 10 years in our circles, is you can't exercise away a bad diet. You can't lose, it's not a good idea to try to lose weight by exercising. The biggest loser and Jillian Michaels notwithstanding. It doesn't work. And if it does work in the short term, it's certainly not sustainable. So we're back to, so what does exercise look like and how is it best incorporated into your life? Well, if you get the fact that exercise needn't be a rigorous form of weight loss or calorie burning, that in fact, exercise is truly about the movement. It's about putting the muscles and the joints of your body through different planes and ranges of motion over time. If you understand that concept, then you get to say, all right, so some of the things that I used to think were frivolous, like playing, like chasing after my dog with a Frisbee or playing pickup basketball in the driveway with my kids, that all counts. That's, that's not just play. It's actually movement that is fulfilling the requirements of your body to move through different planes and ranges of motion throughout the day. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. 
I seriously had the time of my life last year and I would love to hang out with you guys and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohacking conference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohacking conference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. And how intuitive is that? So for example, so something I've been doing for years is I actually typically wear wrist weights and sometimes ankle weights just during the day, even when I'm like running groceries and stuff, because I figure then I'm I'm just maximizing the way I would naturally be using my muscles, but I'm making it more difficult for them. But I don't really do, because you have so many examples of functional movement and also like regimented exercises and such in your books to do. So how important is it to actually have a sort of workout routine versus just moving and lifting things and being more intuitive? So starting about 15 years ago, I, I came up with this basic template, this basic workout strategy, which was move as often as frequently as you can at low levels of aerobic output, lift heavy things twice a week, and sprint once a week. And so that template is like, I would say, the basic routine for an optimized fitness slash health program, because you want to understand that, that at some level, the fitter you get, the more you can compromise your health. And, and I was an example of that as a, as a marathoner. I was very fit, but I was very unhealthy. So with, the, with this template of move around a lot at a low level of activity, that encompasses the play, that could encompass lots of walking, walking breaks or easy cycling or any number of other activities, yoga, tai chi, you know, just basic stretching, all of this counts. The lift heavy things twice a week is basically, I would say, the minimum amount necessary to build and or maintain muscle mass. And we can talk about the importance of muscle mass, especially as we get older. And the intention of warding off the, the vagaries of sarcopenia, which is, which is what most older people suffer from, it's a loss of muscle. So we want to maintain muscle mass or build muscle mass. And then sprint once a week. And sprinting doesn't have to be running sprinting. It can be any sort of all-out high-level activity. It could be on the elliptical. It could be on the bike. It could be swimming. It could be certainly could be running in the grass. I've got a, a new machine that I love tremendously at, the, at, at my gym here. It's a rope pull machine. And so I do you know, four, four sets of all-out 60-second pulls on that once a week. But, but it's the concept Again, if we, if we look at the clues that we get from evolution and our ancestors, yeah, they moved all the time. So they were always moving around and walking and migrating and, and, and squatting and standing and sitting on and, and doing all sorts of different physical activities. You know, the concept of a sofa didn't exist, right? So, and they were carrying things. And then they would, and then the, this lifting heavy things, you know, once in a while, they would lift a heavy carcass and, and, and bring it you know, a hundred pound piece of leg from an animal 10 miles back to camp. 
So lifting heavy things twice a week was part of the strategy. And then I, I, I like to think that our ancestors were always sort of on the edge of danger and that they might have had to run really fast all out once a week, right? And sprint really hard. And if it wasn't running away from something that was going to eat you, maybe it was running towards something that you were going to eat. And, and these, these, they're, you know, I, sort of I, idyllic, iconic, you know, it's who knows what, what our ancestral life was actually like on a day-to-day basis, but we can pull from modern day hunter gatherers that with those sorts of tenants move around a lot as often as you can change positions as often as you can. So sit, stand, kneel, stretch, have a stand up desk, but don't stand at the desk all day, et cetera, et cetera. Lift heavy things twice a week, which for a lot of people means go to the gym and do your workout and then sprint once a week, which, which I just described. Those are what I would say the basic elements for an optimized health span. And you'd be pretty darn fit if you really, if you, if you went after those aggressively. Now, can you do more? Absolutely. I do more, right? I do, I do a fair amount more than that. But I also know that if I do too much more, I get, uh, I'm at the effect of it. I get burned out. I literally get burned out because understand that intense exercise is a stressor. And while a little bit of stress is good, and we can talk about hormesis if you want, but a little bit of stress is good, but a, a lot of stress piled up day after day is bad. So it's finding this balance. Yeah. You talked about something in your book that I did not realize, but that intense exercise actually causes DNA to leak into our bloodstream, I believe. And then our immune system can react to it kind of like bacteria. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a, that's a simplified explanation. But yeah, it's, it's like anything that in my days of, of hard training, I ran my heart up to max probably four times a week. And I don't mean just for a few seconds or minutes at a time. I, met, I mean, sometimes for 30 or 40 minutes at a time. I was in that, that red zone that they talk about now in, in all of the sort of cardio, cardio endurance training manuals. Like, don't be in this zone, you know, more than X number of minutes per week. Well, I was in it, you know, sometimes four or five times a week. That sort of stress, it literally <laughs> tears, tears your muscles down, tears your it's an undue stress on your heart. I mean, I'm paying, I pay for it now. I have an enlarged left ventricle, which don't feel bad for me because every runner that ran as much as I did over the years that I did, and it's millions of people have the same issue. This is why AFib is such a big epidemic almost among former runners aged 55 to say 75. We assumed at the time, the more you did, the better. And the harder and faster you ran, the better it was for your longevity. And it turns out that was just way too much, you know, dis- destruction, too much damage, too much trauma on the body. And yeah, some of us were able to survive literally the training and then race well, but many of us are paying a price for having gone that hard for that long. Now you can say, well, the best in the world, if you're the best in the world at what you're doing, then you're willing to pay the price, right? But if you're not, if you're not competitive, then I would ask, okay, what is the, what's, what's the carrot at the end of that stick for you? Why are you pushing yourself so hard? And I see a lot of what I would call age group athletes who push themselves way too hard. And especially for their genetic, you know, predisposition and, and background, you look at some people you're like, you know, you are running six marathons a year 
and no offense, but you're, you're not running them very fast. Why are you even, you know, like, why don't you find another sport? I don't mean to be, to be critical about, about that, but you know, mar- marathons are not fun. You can say that you, you know, you enjoy the challenge and you, you know, run with friends, but they're not fun and you are managing pain and you are creating a, you know, a, a, a disruption in your body and your metabolism and, it's, and you're going to pay a price. So the question really is, what is the end game here for you as a, as an endurance athlete or as a, you know, as a weightlifter who's trying to, you know, win your age group or as a CrossFit athlete who's trying to, you know, compete in the games, you know, there's, there's a fair amount of damage that one can do to oneself that, that may not look like much in, in, in the short term, but in the long term, you know, can manifest as like, shit, I wish I hadn't done that, you know, back in the day. I have a really big foundational question, but before that, two quick questions about the the heart zone. One, do you know what heart zone is achieved from sauna use? (laughs) So it's uh, no, because it's a, it's an artificial, you know, it's, it's not really creating any sort of an aerobic benefit. It's your body trying to dissipate heat. So I would not use sauna, like I would not use my heart rate in the sauna as contributing to any sort of a training benefit. It's more of a, a hormetic experience. It's, you know, there are hormesis, there are hormetic benefits from sauna, heat shock protein and stuff like that. But, but as a training element, I would discount sauna entirely. Question two, you talked about the red zone, but is there the black zone, like the black hole zone with fat burning and becoming glycolytic versus fat burning. Yeah, so so that's one of the great revelations that Brad and I had years ago, and and was supported by the science and and this friend of ours, Phil Maffetone, who really pioneered the concept, was that many many athletes run or cycle or perform way too many miles at too high a heart rate and not enough miles at a very high heart rate. And then, so they, so they run, you know, they run, they might run in this one zone that is neither aerobic or truly anaerobic. It's like, it's what we call a no man's land or the black hole of training. And they do it because that's probably where they race. That's probably the heart rate at which they race. But if you do it every day, you don't build the component parts to get better. So, you know, racing and again, managing this discomfort involves becoming really good. First of all, you have to develop muscle strength. You have to develop what we call capillary perfusion. You have to encourage your body to, to produce more capillaries to supply blood to muscle fibers. You have to increase the number of mitochondria in your muscles and you can double it under certain circumstances black hole training doesn't doesn't even come close to doubling it you can even improve the efficiency of some of the mitochondria you already have because mitochondria has its own dna so black hole the training of the black hole would be like training most of the time at 80 to 92 percent of your max heart rate and that's what i spent much of my career doing what it does is it it certainly gives you the mental fortitude to practice hurting but it doesn't it doesn't look at the at the component parts of training which would say okay 
let's take some time and just build an aerobic base. And while we're building the aerobic base, let's focus on the aerobic base. Let's focus on becoming really efficient at burning fat so that we can extract more and more energy from fat and depend less and less on energy coming from stored muscle glycogen. And to do that, we, we, we do a lot of training at a number that we've sort of derived from lab tests that is, for the most part, it's 180 minus your age and do not exceed that number for most of your miles. Well, 180 minus your age, if you're a, a 40-year-old guy and you go, wait, 140 beats a minute, that's the most I can train at. Jesus, I can't even go that fast doing that. That's like that's like 13-minute miles for me, and I can run seven-minute miles. Well, true, but what that means is if you can't run, if you can only run 13-minute miles at 180 minus your age, at, at 180 minus 40 your age, at a max of 140 beats a minute, what it means is you're not good at burning fat. The idea is to get 95% of your energy from fat, which is an aerobic function entirely, does not depend on, on the glycogen. So we, we create this strategy where if you, as you spend more and more time training at a heart rate of 140 or less, in this case, the 13-minute miles become 12-minute miles, and the 12-minute miles become 11s, and the 11s become 10s, and the next thing you know it, you're running eight-minute, eight-and-a-half-minute miles at that same 140 beats a minute. So you become more efficient at burning fat. So now when you get in a race and you want to race at 165 or 170 beats a minute, most, you know, a, a much greater proportion of your energy is coming from fat and much less of it as a proportion is coming from glycogen, which means you race faster and the guy that you're racing against or the gal that you're racing against who is right across from you is probably burning a lot more glycogen than you are and is going to hit the wall sooner than you will. So you're training the aerobic part of that very specifically to focus on capillary perfusion, on mitochondrial biogenesis, creating more mitochondria, accessing stored fat more readily and quickly, and eventually learning how your brain can, can thrive on the ketones that come from burning fat and not depend on liver glycogen. So that's that's like part one of, of an endurance strategy that would say build an aerobic base first and and to do that, you're going to have to throw your ego out the window and be okay jogging 12-minute miles for a while or, or riding your bike at 13 miles an hour instead of 20 miles an hour until you develop this system. Then we can start to layer on some high intensity, some interval training, some weight training and things that they're not in the, in the black zone or in the, in, the, in the black hole or the no man's land because now you're above that level, but you're not spending you know, at half an hour at it, you're spending minutes at a time or sometimes 10 minutes at, at, at a time doing that. And by, and by putting these component parts together, then when you get to, to that race or that event where you want to perform maximally, then you can race in that, in that black hole heart rate zone, but now you're much better suited to do it. And you're not just beating yourself up every day. And is that something that definitely requires actual heart rate monitoring or can you intuitively know if you're in this zone? It pretty much requires heart rate monitoring until you get intuitive about it. So you have to understand, you have to sort of know through experience where that zone is and what it feels like. I mean, I can tell you that you can be in that zone, at least at the, at the lowest end of the zone 
as long as you can carry on a, a conversation without gasping with somebody that you're running with or cycling with, then you're in that zone. Once you have to gasp and, and start to catch up before you talk, you're out of that zone. Okay. So now my big question, it's a little bit more of an epistemological question, but we keep talking about how hunter-gatherers lived and how that can inform in part our decisions that we make today. If reproduction was the end goal of hunter-gatherers and arguably their life wasn't set up for longevity, how do we know what to be informed about with our choices today? if it wasn't set up for longevity anyways, their lifestyle? No, it's, it's a great question. Really a great question. And, and you know, I don't have the answer other than many of our hunter-gatherer ancestors, if they survived the regular onslaught from a marauding tribe, you know, a warring tribe, hunting animal, animals that were hunting them, poisonous plants, literally stepping on on some sharp object and getting an infection. The number of things that could kill somebody while they were still in great health was overwhelming. And so the average lifespan was, as they say, in the 30s or whatever. But if you survived all of that, there was a good chance you could live to 90 or 94. And so we, we do know that many of our ancestors were able to live, not many, but, but those who lived, who survived all of the other <laughs> traumatic events and rigors were able to live well into their 90s, that does inform us. That just suggests that it, it, that we've removed all these other extraneous factors, all these animals that are going to, you know, kill us in the middle of the night, or, you know, we, we have antibiotics if we get an infection now. Theoretically, we don't have that many wars where we're being invaded by, by other tribes anymore. And all that does is leave lifestyle as the prime indicator of whether or not you do make it to those 90s. I would say that our, that our, like I'm the biggest proponent of our sole reason for being here is to, is to pass the genetic material along to the next generation and to set that generation up for success. And so I'd say setting that generation up for success includes, it takes a village, aunts and uncles and grand, grandparents. But yeah, I would I, I just feel like our DNA, our, our the genetic recipe that we each have really does want us to be strong, lean, fit, happy, healthy, productive, loving, you know, over as, as long a period of time as possible. Now, is that Dave Asprey's 160 years or whatever? No, no, ain't, ain't going there. But, you know, if you get me to 90 and I'm still mobile, I'm going to be a very happy camper. Do you think that's actually a parallel to something else you talk about? You talk about how if a person makes it to 80 today, then their rate of... Yeah, the likelihood of get, getting to 90 is pretty pretty significant. Yeah. So like back then with the hunter-gatherers, the cap that you had to make it to was you know not getting killed compared to today where you make it to 80. And I'm thinking that like chronic disease is probably that that thing that you're passing. It's like if you made it to 80 then you probably don't have the things happening of chronic disease. 100%. If you, if you make it to 80 in good health, then you've, I mean, I, I don't know what the number is. You've got a 60 or 70% chance of making it to 90. You know, if you make it to 80 and you're just hanging on by a thread, we, we won't talk about that. But if you're 80 and in good health, then you can easily predict another, another good 10 years. 
Yeah, that is so, so fascinating. Hi, friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order. So you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous and they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. Another big question about how do we know what we know? You talked about in your career as an endurance athlete and your diet that you were following, the high-carb diet, how you had GI distress. You said that it something about how it wasn't the diet suited to you. So I am so haunted by this question. I actually recently had Dr. B who wrote Fiber Fueled on the show, and we were talking about like he thinks that any GI distress from like a high plant intake is just an indicator of a damaged gut and that that's what that means. And you need to like learn how to eat those plants. How do we know? Like this question of like, if the vegan versus carnivore wars are plants anti-nutrients or are they, you know, the best thing ever? 
how do we know? There's just so many opinions. That's look, if I were if I were a lay person listening to this show or listening to any show where you you had on various guests and they had diverse opinions, I would be pulling my hair out because how do you know? That's exactly right. How do you know? You should, I don't know if he's still around. This guy, Konstantin Monastirsky. Have you ever heard the name or read the book? Did he write the fiber? Fiber Menace. We've emailed before. I tried to get him on the show, but he said he wasn't doing shows much anymore. I mean, I read, I read the book 12 or 15 years ago and I thought this guy has it nailed. This is, this is, you know, the, the counter argument to fiber being the great panacea for everything that ails us. And I mean, I, th- I think we went through the 80s and 90s with, with dietary fiber being hailed as the missing link in health. And so breakfast cereals had more dietary fiber and Metamucil started taking off and psyllium husk became the sort of go-to broom to sweep out your colon. And I would argue that that is so miscast as as any sort of panacea, that fiber is not that necessary. And I'll get into why I, why I think that. And I've had this discussion with Paul Saladino and with Sean Baker, both of whom I respect very highly. You know, Saladino has, he spent time as a vegan and it wrecked his health. And now he's a carniv- carnivore. And yet he's even adapted his carnivore lifestyle to include fruit and honey but to exclude vegetables. And he's proposing that vegetables are anti-nutrients that are antithetical to health. And we, we, most of us would probably do better not eating vegetables at all, or that fiber in and of itself has no real nutritional benefit other than to feed certain bacteria in our gut. It's certainly been proven, I think, that fiber isn't and most people view fiber as, again, like this giant broom sweeping your gut clean and, you know, taking these massive poops. And a lot of vegans that I know would say, if you don't poop after every meal, you're unhealthy. Well, I mean, please. I mean, that, that's, just, that's just crazy. So let's talk about poop for a second. Fecal matter is largely dead bacteria. It's bacterial turnover from your gut. You have upwards of 60 trillion, some might say 100 trillion bacteria in your gut. And many of them have a lifespan of a day or two or, or, or you know, three or four. And that bacterial turnover, we have to get rid of it. Those dead bacteria have to come out of our gut. So we would, we would poop without fiber. And, and as you can obviously understand from reading some of the reports from the carnivore people, they have, they're, they're bragging about their, they're having the, the easiest, most well-formed poops of their lives, having, having turned to carnivore. So that sort of proves that you don't, you don't need fiber to have a well-formed stool. And yeah, you can, you can have fiber. And, and so Saladino would say, in fact, that plants are emergency food, that we really, as an evolving species, we always went for the meat first, the animal, the animal flesh, the animal source of protein first, whether it was shellfish or fish, if you live near the ocean, whether it was eggs, newts, toads, snakes, frogs, birds, and or whether it was, you know, larger megafauna, whatever it was, the preferred human food 
And the most nutritious and nutrient-dense form of food comes as, as animal protein. And once you've satisfied that requirement, you don't really need some additional amount of nutrition from, again, Saladino would say, and I would agree, many of the things that we used to look at as phytonutrients, right? These plant-based nutrients are actually relatively benign, but still they're there, poison that the plant would put out to, to discourage an animal from eating it. And it's a reason that, that to humans, most plants taste bitter. I mean, broccoli and kale and cauliflower and asparagus and all leafy greens are quite bitter to the taste, which is why we want to put butter on them or salt or steam them or, or put dressing on them. And, and that's historically an indication that it's probably not good to eat. I mean, there's a reason now we know or we can predict why kids don't like vegetables because they're not they're probably not designed to eat vegetables. And so we, but we force them to eat vegetables because they're supposed to be good for you, right? On the other hand, fruit. Fruit tastes great to us. Fruit is sweet. Fruit wants to be eaten. Fruit needs to be eaten in order for it's, it to carry on its genetic mandate of passing that genetic material along to the next generation. So in our true analysis of, of, how we got here and how we evolved with a slight distaste for plant matter and an appreciation of fruit. And every, I don't care what community it is around the world, and you might say, well, some of these Blue Zones people, they don't eat that much meat. When you offer them more meat, they eat more meat because it's, it's, not, it's about access. It's not about preference, right? If they had access to more meat, they would prefer it. They would choose to eat it. So, Gosh, that got off on all kinds of tangents there about poop and about, uh, but, but the, the, so the fiber part of this back to the butyric acid and the, and, and, you know, food for the certain bacteria that reside in the gut, certainly some, some forms of fiber act as a substrate for those gut bacteria to produce those butyrates and those short chain fatty acids. On the other hand, so does collagen and ancestrally, most people ate nose to tail. They didn't just eat the T-bone, you know, or the, or the prime rib or the ribeye. They, they ate the gristle and the, and parts of the skin and the omentum and, and other parts of the animal that were, that were high in collagenous gelatinous material. And it was that material that acted as the substrate for those bacteria in the gut to create those short chain fatty acids and, 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 and feed the cells lining the gut. Ergo, you get hundreds of thousands of people now who are on the carnivore diet who are claiming all of their dietary woes are gone. Like they, they're cured. And I would say, I would suggest that's the explanation. There are a lot of people who try to eat vegetables, try to eat more fiber. I mean, if fiber is your problem, then the worst thing you can do is is listen to somebody's advice that says, well, yes, fiber is your problem. You're not eating enough of it, right? So, I mean, Monastirsky had this great, great thing of this theory that much of the, the fiber from grains, which, you know, the bran from grains, which was initially, again, sold as a benefit to health, starting back from the days of Kellogg and then throughout all of the breakfast cereal manufacturers and then a little heart-healthy emblem that it would – that, that somehow that fiber would, would sop up all the bad cholesterol 
in you. I mean, Monastirsky said, look, the, when that fiber hits your gut, it expands. And your colon, your intestines in your colon are not, they're smooth muscle. They're not striated muscle. They're not designed to expand. And if you expand them, that's how you develop diverticuli and diverticulitis. And that's how you get, you know, gut problems and you get uh, uh, additional permeability. So I'm, I'm having not just read more over the past decades, but having followed and, and talked to Paul Saladino and Sean Baker, uh, my own diet is becoming more carnivore and less plant-based. You know, I was, one of my original claims to fame was I was the proponent of the big ass salad. Do you remember back that far? I remember. I remember. Oh, I was there. I was there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was the big ass salad guy. I don't eat a big ass salad ever anymore. And I'm not suggesting that people don't. It's just that for me, I'm like, okay, I'm like, part of this is also back to my my two meals a day strategy, which which was the recognition that that even I, as buff and cut as I am at my age, was eating too much food. Like I don't need to eat as much food as I even thought I needed 10 years ago, you know, or or even five years ago. So so one of the ways to cut down on the on the amount of food is to cut kind of the bulk out first and go, okay, I'm going to start with protein. I got to get, you know, I, I know I got to get my protein requirements in, every day and then add in some fat. Great. Okay. I got some fat. And then I'm not a big fan of, of carbs, but if I do, it'll be fruit and a little bit of vegetables, but I, I really don't eat salads much anymore. I, it's not like I don't like them. I love the crunchiness. I love the feeling. I love the, you know, if you dress them to the hilt, then you can't even know that there's lettuce in there. That's I mean, that's why I created Primal Kitchen, so I could have salad dressings that I can slather onto my salads, right? And not just have to use them sparingly, but 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 make the salad dressing the primary taste element in that otherwise fairly bitter concoction. For listeners, I've had both Paul and Sean Baker on the show, so I'll put links to that in the show notes. Here's a question that haunts me about all of this, though, and I've, I think about this all the time, and it's that in the nose-to-tail argument... I don't understand if organ meats are so nutritious, especially something like liver. I don't know why people, especially even people like in the paleo world and people who have, quote, cleaned up their diet, why people don't seem to like liver. And like, even for me, I went through a period of time where I was very anemic and I was like, okay, like I never had liver. So I was like, I'm sure I'm going to love the way this tastes because I'm anemic. Like this is something that would nourish my body. And I just couldn't stomach it. And I don't know if that's a learned response or if there's something in these organ meats that we shouldn't be eating. Well, I don't think it's that it's something that we shouldn't be eating. I, I do think it's a learned response. I think, you know, we have refined our taste buds for better or worse over the years to, to seek out more sweet, you know, crunchy, salty, fatty, sweet. It's just a it's just a artifact of the food production and manufacturing environment, and so we've lost some of us have lost that taste for savory. I mean, I'm about ready to head over to Europe. When I'm in France, I will have foie gras every single day. It's like one of my favorite foods in the world, and it'll be in the form of a pate or just a regular liver. But you know, it's cooked a, a certain way. And I do remember when I was I'm going to say 12, 13 years old. I started cooking chicken livers for myself, chicken livers and onions, and I and I loved it. I just wonder if like vitamin toxicity might be a thing. I'm not gonna, 
I, I, I would highly doubt that if that's, if that's the issue, if that's, you know, there, there's, um, there is a, a body of work that suggests that if your body, if, you know, if it doesn't taste good to you, don't eat it. Your, your body's not craving it. And we, we, we had some friends back in Malibu about 15 years ago, they lived in a van down by the river. They were brilliant. They were a European couple and they wrote a book called Gene Fit Nutrition, G-E-N-E Fit Nutrition. And their thesis was that you craved the things that you craved for reasons that had to do with deficiencies. And so they had a program and they would come to our house. We, we hosted this program and there were like 15 people signed up and they would come for lunch and dinner every day. And our people would come to our house and this couple would set out all these foods on the table. And it would be, and they're all raw, by the way, and it would be raw liver, raw, you know, raw vegetables, fruit, raw, I remember they were like crab, raw, raw basketball crab, like an actual full on 10 inch body shell basketball crab, fish still in the, you know, still in the skin, just like you'd see at a, like you'd pick a fish out of the restaurant and they would blindfold you and hold these different foods up to your nose and you would pick what you're going to have for lunch. And it was bizarre that what people would pick and then they'd, you know, they'd have to eat it and it was, and they'd have to eat it raw. They wound up leaving Malibu to go buy, buy an island and set up a retreat somewhere. But it was a really interesting, you know, concept, whether or not it was legit, I don't know. So I do think that so much of our current taste patterns are artificially engineered by, you know, the, the foods that we grew up on that may have not have been quite appropriate for us. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off. And that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What When Wine. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, there's a really fascinating study that I can put in the show notes, and it's an old study. They couldn't do it today because of probably ethical reasons, but they basically let babies up until a certain age self-select their meals, and it was all of these foods. The entirety of the foods would cover all of their nutritional basis if they selected the right combinations, but it was things like liver and egg yolks, and the babies would intuitively just eat what they needed from everything. So it's pretty interesting. I'm glad you brought up the Primal Kitchen stuff because I'm dying to just quickly pick your brain on some of that experience and in your life as an entrepreneur. Super curious with the Primal Kitchen stuff. Goal-wise, I was acquired by Heinz. Kraft Heinz. So when you first started it, 
did you have goals like that? Was that not a goal? Like, did you, because like right now, for example, this is not even remotely the same thing, but I created an app that's doing really well and people have wanted to buy it. And I'm like, but then it's attached to my name. Like, what if, what if it changes and then people associate it with me still? So I'm, I'm super curious just about your journey, what that's been like. And congratulations as well. Oh, thanks. Thanks. It's been th- three and a half years since I sold it. It's, it's been a long time already. But no, I, I always built it with the intent on exiting, on selling it. I mean, I was 61 years old when I started the company. So I was already, you know, like long in the tooth and didn't want to, you know, build something that was going to be with me for 15 or 20 years. I also recognize that the nature of the food industry is that if you prove the concept and you build it right, there's a point at which you run out of money and you either have to do an IPO or do another raise. But in order to get what I wanted was my, my mission was to change the way the world eats. And that started with Mark's Daily Apple back in 2006. It continued with all of my books, which were all geared toward educating and changing the way the world eats. It continued with the Primal Kitchen restaurants, which were un- unfortunately not sustainable. And it continued with the recognition that when you clean up your diet, when you get rid of the industrial seed oils and the sugars and the added sugars and sweeteners and things like that, and you get rid of the processed foods and, and processed grains, you come down to a fairly short list of things that, that are appropriate for every person. Meat, fish, fowl, eggs, nuts, seeds, vegetables, a little bit of fruit, maybe some starchy tubers. That's not a big list. But there are literally millions of ways to prepare these based on the herbs, the spices, methods of preparation, methods of cooking, sauces, dressings, toppings. I started with a book in 2010 called Primal Blueprint Sauces, Dressings, and Toppings. I had had massive success with my first book, The Primal Blueprint, and I thought this was going to crush. So we printed 40,000 copies. I think we sold 8,000 copies so far. So what I got from that was that people want sauces and dressings and toppings. They just don't want to make them. They don't want to read about them and make them themselves. And so that was the impetus for Primal Kitchen. And what that did was it, it made me rethink how food is prepared at an industrial level in this country and how it's offered up. The first big, I think, aha moment and, and proof of concept was to introduce a jar of mayonnaise, a 12-ounce jar of mayonnaise that costs nine ninety five. Cost almost three times as much as most mayonnaise that size, and to realize that there were there were millions of people who were like, "Oh my God! Finally, someone gets me. Someone understands that I pay attention to the ingredient panel, and and this is I'm willing and I'm able to pay that amount of money for a demonstrably better product." In fact, our you know our sort of internal corporate mantra is. Whatever category we enter, we want to be demonstrably the best product in that category. That means not having inf- offensive ingredients. That means having certain ingredients that are known to be, I won't use a word, the term superfood, but you know, be- defined as better for you, like avocado oil, for instance. And probably the most important criteria, it has to taste good, right? If it doesn't taste good, it doesn't matter what, what's in it. And, and that was the, the reason for, for this. Well, with Primal Kitchen... If my mission was to change the way the world eats, I need, I need it to be a billion-dollar company. 
And, and as many startups encounter, you hit a point where your original management team, the scale of manufacturing, whatever it is, can't keep up with your intent for growth. And so I knew fairly early on, like three years in, I was ready to start to go to market and find a buyer. We'd certainly proven that we were the new golden child in the food industry. We were the new kids on the block, but we were, everybody knew who we were in the food industry. And I needed a partner, if you will, who could express my plan and and execute on my plan to change the way the world eats. Now, if that included engendering other competitive products that were that were just as good, so be it. That's part of my plan was to change the way the world eats. And if I did it, if I were able to do it that way, both through the expansion and the resources that Kraft Heinz gave us, and it was it was an amazing choice. I mean, I could not have picked a better partner. They've they've they basically kept our entire team. They didn't fire anybody. They gave us financial resources to to grow even faster. They've sat back and literally watched us and said, "Holy crap!" Like we we're extremely pleased with this with this company and with this acquisition, and we want to learn from this because we have you know forty other brands that that some of which need a little bit of work, and so it has fulfilled pretty much all my expectations. We're not at a billion dollars yet, but I but I have no doubt we'll get there. Yeah, I'm I'm so so interested in this because I recently launched a supplement line, so I'm like right at the very beginning, but same thing with your mission of making like the best that you can of a certain product and then having to evaluate the the price point for that and everything. It's just been such a learning experience. So you're actively still involved. Yes. Oh sure. Yep. I mean, I sold it. They own a, they own 100% of the company, but I'm still you know, the, the face of the brand and the spokesperson and I'm involved in, in decisions and, and, you know, R and D. Yeah. Gotcha. And then the ill-fated restaurant, you said in one of your books, I think you said there was like seven times that you knew that you probably should have quit with it. I'm wondering what you've learned about that whole experience with when to quit and should we quit and why? No, that's, 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 you know, another sort of, I can only give you opinions on that, but ultimately all of those decisions come down to your gut. In this case, my gut was that while it was a great idea and, and people liked the, they loved the restaurant. I mean, when we opened, people said, oh my God, it's about time somebody gave, you know, gave this a run. Yeah. I loved it by the way. It was fabulous. I was so sad when I went back. I was like, what happened? Yeah. Well, you have no idea how sad I was, but we, we had plenty of business. We had, you know, we were, we, we had great reviews and we were losing $40,000 a month at that one location. And by the way, we had other, we had another location in Indianapolis that a franchisee had bought that was having similar problems. And we realized that, and I, I, you know, not to, not to cast too much blame, but I had a partner who was the, the restaurant. I was the brand guy. I mean, we sold 18 franchises without, without an operating unit. It was one of the most successful franchises in the history of franchising. But my partner was an operations guy and he, he just didn't literally didn't do the math. And there was, there was, there was no way to fix, to fix these losses. And, you know, when you're losing $40,000 a month on a restaurant, you can look at it as, well, if we really 
fix things up and tidy up here and clean it up there and do this and do that. Maybe we can get to break even in, in a year. Well, you know, in a year, that's another $240,000 down the drain. That's six BMWs. Sorry, that's, that's what am I saying? It's almost a half million dollars down the drain. I was thinking six months. And who wants to be at break even? You know, I want to, I want to make a profit. I don't want to just work my ass off to get to break even. So we, we literally had to pull the plug in order not to spend millions more on what probably based on food costs and in in LA it's you know the, the the regulations and the wages and the rent and everything made it almost impossible for it to be a successful going concern so yeah i had to i had to pull a plug and it was very painful but it had to be done i mean i think it's something cuz people obviously experience successes and failures in life. So is it something looking back that you, like, would you have done things differently? Would you have started it not from that initial, you know, calculation error with the math or was that the way it was supposed to happen? And Oh, you can only look at these things as that's how it had to happen. I named it Primal Kitchen Restaurants, right? And I started the restaurant at the same time I started the, the, the food company. And I thought they'd be synergistic. Well, then when I realized the food company was taking off and the restaurant was was going to be dragging things down, I realized that was that was a mistake to name them both the same name. So I kind of I in addition to other the other factors, I also didn't want the losses accumulating on the restaurant side to taint the brand that was Primal Kitchen on the food side. But but I I, I learned. For the second time in my life, I learned that I shouldn't be in the restaurant business. For the second time? Oh, I had a restaurant in 1983 for about a year that, again, it was ahead of its time. It was like, it was frozen yogurt and, and a 60-foot long salad bar and healthy brand muffins, which were the thing back in the day. And, you know, and it was, it was really, again, very well received, but just suffered from a bad location. Oh, also suffer from the fact that we, we had a bank loan in 1983 at 17 and three quarters percent. So for anybody who's old enough to remember the eighties and we're hearing about it, you know, you hear about inflation now hasn't been this bad for almost 40 years. Well, that was, that was what we were dealing with was a bank loan at 17 and three quarters percent, which we felt privileged to be able to get by the way. So we couldn't, you know, it was a, again, another financial consideration. And I should have learned my lesson then because I had a partner in that too, and I don't do well with partners. So I just, so there were, there were a, a number of lessons, but all of, all of these things, like everything I've done in my life points to where I am today. And I wouldn't go back and change any of it. Even the, you know, the painful stuff, like my, like the, the years I spent bent over in pain because of IBS that, that literally ran my life every single day. I wouldn't have come to the primal blueprint and my stance on grains and, and gluten had it not been for that horrible physical experience that I had, you know? So, you know, people say, well, if you could go back and you knew how to train like you do now, if you could train, you know, for triathlon in a, in a way that, that in, incorporates and embodies all of the things you talk about today, would you do it? I'm like, no, because, you know, it, it hurt too much. And I only learned what I know today because of the mistakes I made then. So to any entrepreneur, I, I would say, look, you only need one home run in your entire career, right? And you can have a ton of failures and one home run, even a triple 
makes it worth all of all of that stuff that you tried and failed at. Another super random fast question. So you talk about the importance of social community and relationships in your books. So obviously you don't have to name names, but I'm super curious because you talk about how they say that the five people that you surround yourself with are 90 something percent responsible for your success. So who are the five people that you historically have surrounded yourself with? Like what types of people? Yeah. Outside of my wife and my kids, I I have not had a a really close alignment, but I would say, you know, one of my friends is one of the largest vitamin sellers in the world and my best friend and godfather of my kids. I hang around him a lot. I don't know if you know, Tony Horton, Tony and I, and this other guy by this third guy, just the guy I just mentioned, the three of us were single and didn't have a pot to piss in living in Santa Monica in, in the mid eighties. And he, and each one of us became like quite successful in our own right. I would almost say very extremely successful in our own right. And so, you know, we kind of lifted each other up in that regard and supported each other. So it wasn't just about, and then I've got another friend who, you know, is a trust fund guy, but always a great attitude. And even though he was a trust fund guy, he had to be in business all the time. He, He had to start his own stuff because he needed to feel, you know, like he was, you know, producing or contributing. Right. And that's, you know, that's kind of my core group. And then, you know, I've, I've got new friends now where I live in Miami and much of what I've done over my career is to weed out the negative influences more than to find positive influences. And when you, you know, when you say you're the, some, the average of the five people you hang around with most, I've weeded out a lot of bad energy in my life. But people who I thought were my friends or thought were contributing to my to my own greater good, but ultimately weren't. And I think that's a real particular skill to be able to say no to somebody and say, you know, I'm sorry, we, we just resonate on different wavelengths and it's not you or it's not me. It's just this isn't going to work. Well, this has been so amazing. I so appreciate your time. We didn't even get into, before we started recording, you were talking about how you are known as like the anti-biohacking. But I I will say, so I I feel like I'm sort of anti-biohacking and that like, I think the goal of biohacking is to create things in our life that would put our bodies in a state that would have been the way we were without modern technology. So it's like reverting back. It's like using cryotherapy to get cold exposure. So it's not to like... No, but I mean, that's exactly my point. Uh, my point would be that, that, that biohackers, for the most part, don't want to do the work. They want the shortcut, right? They don't want to feel the pain or do the work. So, so the cryotherapy, you know, you, oh, I was in 320 below, you know, air for, you know, two minutes. And it was, it was awesome, dude. And then, well, no, get in a 46 degree cold plunge for four minutes and then tell me how you feel, right? Or I've got a bike that I, you know, and I think wear these compression sleeves around your thighs and they pump cold water through it and 10 minutes is worth an hour and a half on the bike. I'm like, no, it's not. Get out and ride the bike for an hour and a half and then tell me, you know, how you feel. I think, you know, I've got a watch that tells me how I slept last night. Seriously? Like, how'd you sleep last night? Well, I feel pretty good. I don't know. I don't need a device to tell me how I feel. Yeah. Well, the last question that I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? I am grateful for my family. I've got a wonderful family. I've got a a, a wife of 32 years. We've been together 34. Two amazing kids and now two grandchildren as a result of that. So I am extremely 
extremely grateful for my family. Well, thank you so much, Mark. I am so grateful for your work. Like I said, I've been following you for so long and you are truly, I mean, you're talking about that goal of changing the way the world eats. You are truly changing so many lives and this has been such an honor and such a dream. So thank you for your time and happy travels. Thank you, Melanie. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, Mark. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.